we were fighting into a place called Zumbale and we'd been ambushed on three sides and there was no way out. And we got caught in the worst place. I was lying on this track up against the bank and there was just no cover and the rounds were like flying all around us. And uh, I remember lying on this bank with nowhere to go and I just accepted it. Any minute, one of these bullets is coming through me. Yeah. There's actually nothing I can do about that. Yeah. So I accept, I accept my position now. But when you accept that, you can then think more clearly. And I had to get up, I had to move, I had to take the fight forward. Welcome to The Eventful Entrepreneur. I'm your host, Dodge, and I'm the CEO and founder of the Bournemouth Sevens Festival and the revolutionary event crowd, our new online events course. On this podcast, I speak to fascinating people who have all lived eventful lives. So if you want to hear more like this, make sure you subscribe, leave us a glowing review, and you can follow me on Instagram at Dodge Woodall. I reply to every single message. Richard Sharp is a Royal Marine Commando veteran who served two tours in Afghanistan. He faced ambushes, heavy gunfire and IEDs, but his toughest tests weren't at war. Upon his return to civilian life, he found himself having a brief stint in the city and then went on to CEO of React. He became central to the government's response to the pandemic and gained a strong reputation for his cause. However, eventually infighting, rumours and accusations reared their heads and Richard found himself in the middle of a scandal that led his face splashed all over the national newspapers alongside Prince Harry. Richard is very open about all aspects of his life and I find his story absolutely fascinating. Here is the eventful life of Mr. Richard Sharp. Mate, let's, um, let's roll all the way back. Where did you grow up and how did you get in to become a Marine? So I'm from Penzance in Cornwall, mate, yeah. all, the way, all the way down the bottom. Um, and I think I was always going to be a Marine. My old man was a, was a bootneck, what we call Marines. And so from a tiny kid, all I wanted to be was... A marine. I didn't really know what that meant, um, but I just wanted to be like him. I saw his mates; these big, hard, gregarious dudes. But they were always like they were good blokes, you know. Yeah. And I just, I just remember being about eight, nine, and they were all in my my mum's. Uh, we had a little seaside hotel down there, and mm. I was just looking like, who are these like yeah. gods? I just yeah, want yeah. to be that, you know. And that was that was always the journey. Yeah. Oh wow! So so your journey from there really. Your, what was school life like for you? Um, uneventful, you know. Yeah. Like uh, got really nice family. Like what you think is what you think is rough in Cornwall when you get out into the world yeah. and you start meeting people from yeah. the inner cities, you're like, oh my god, that's such a sheltered life, yeah. you know. Um, I was just an average run-of-the-mill kid, not particularly bright, not particularly thick. Mm. Um, sort of just school was pretty easy to be honest. Like I got, uh, I say it was pretty easy, but so I look back and my life got probably defined by the sort of the middle teenage years, and I got picked on quite badly because mm. I was a, a scrawny little kid and I. Uh, I love rugby, mm. but I was rubbish at it. Mm. <laughs> um, and I always kept saying I wanted to be a Marine, like my big hard dad. And of course, that just made me pick on you more, right? Yeah. Um, and actually, loads of my life sort of comes out of that. Because sort of this, we'll talk about it, I'm sure, as we go along. Yeah. I talked about a lot with people, like imposter syndrome. I yeah. felt like an imposter since I was about 13 years yeah. old. And I still do often yeah. today, you know. I think everyone gets that. Yeah. Well, it's often associated at the moment with... Um, with sort of the, the glass ceilings for females in business and their imposter syndrome, but 
I've yeah. been living with my whole, uh, yeah, my whole yeah, life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, so what? What, what was the get out for you then? Was it to follow the, a career in rugby? Was that? Is that? Was that your ultimate goal? Yeah. So about eighteen, um, did, did I ever believe I could be a full time rugby player? Probably not. Mm. You know, you know, because I, I got better at eighteen because I started to fill out. Yeah. And then the tenacity that I'd learned by being a little kid that just loved it. Um, you know, I was a reasonably a reasonably tough kid at eighteen then. Yeah. But I was like, I was ungovernable. I was uncontrollable. I was just. I get frustrated. Were you loose? Yeah, I get frustrated. I wasn't doing what I thought I wanted to be doing and making yeah. the impact I wanted to do. And then I just get loose and I'd hit people. And yeah, I was getting carded all the time. I was just like a menace. And I look at the older guys. <laughs> what position? I was an open side. Open, okay. Yeah, I look at the older guys, which I then later became, and I was super frustrated with these young kids that couldn't control it. And I was like, yeah. oh, that was that was that me. was me. Like, yeah, just like <laughs> pelting machine. And what was your path then? So eighteen, you were like you had this big dream of being a marine from your dad and all your mate, your yeah. dad's mates and stuff. But did rugby kind of take the lead at that point? It was, and then I probably I probably wasn't making the best life choices at eighteen. You know, I was off the pitch. Yeah, yeah, I was just I was just a bit wild, you yeah. know, a bit loose, and I probably was going to start getting myself into trouble. Not big crime trouble, but yeah. fighting. And yeah. I was just starting to become a bit of a nose. Mm. And um, I'd wanted to join as a Marine. I didn't want to be an officer. I wanted to be one of the lads. And my old man wouldn't sign the papers, um, sort of about 17. He said, no, like, you can go to college. You can probably get some A-levels. Try and be an officer first. If you don't get in then, you've still got the option. And I resented that for a long time. But actually looking back, it's the best thing that What's the difference between me. an officer and a Marine? So you join, as an officer, you join... Uh, with a commission rank, so I joined as a second lieutenant. Mm. Trained for about twice as long, but you're then instantly put into leadership positions. So okay. you're paid more, you're trained differently, okay. your, your prospects probably increase. And so I I went to to do that at 18, mm. and um, and actually I failed. <laughs> I okay. um, I went to the the protection the selection weekend, and, uh, and they're just like, yeah, mate, you're too immature. Like you're just because I was yeah. I was loose. Yeah. Um, Physically, I was all there. I what, was fine. You, what, you wouldn't listen to you wouldn't listen to orders, or how was how was it then? They're just very good at judging you, okay. I think, and they could just see that I was a young eighteen year old. Yeah, you okay. know, and if they'd taken me then, and I'd succeeded, you know, nine, 18 months later, I'd have been charged of you know hard and raw marines. You know, they just they could see that yeah. I was nowhere near ready. So they, okay. they sent me home. That was a big kick to take at eighteen. Mm, I bet. Yeah. And then what 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 was the bit? What got the bit between your teeth then to go right? I really want to be a marine. So I went back to rugby yeah. and I was playing part-time for Pirates and a team called Mounts Bay down there, which the Cornish Pirates split off into two. It's a semi-pro at the time. Yeah. 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 So this is back in 2002, yeah. three. Remember yeah. this, what that, the era was changing, wasn't yeah. it? People weren't smoking in the change rooms quite yeah. as much as they used to. <laughs> Still a bit. But yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and um, uh, I, had a, I had a girlfriend. I was sort of to fall into, I love Penzance, I love yeah. where I grew up but you can fall into a very long, lifelong rut there. Yeah. And I was falling into that. I was going through this sort of cycle of just existing. Um, go to work with my dad, playing rugby, living for the weekend, getting smashed, not really achieving anything. Yeah. And I think I probably always thought I wanted more. And at about, it was 21, I was like, nah, this, I need to go back to the original plan. And I went back and then succeeded from there you know wow so you went to you started marines at what age then 21 21 how long were you in the marines for uh just under eight years eight years yeah and what was it like to actually pass as a marine was that tough yeah i mean like commando training um i know you've spoken to loads of military guys yeah um commando training is the longest um military training in the world yeah um and it's nails (laughs) yeah and especially when you're a young 
a young person because you might not have experienced hardships like that before. But it's also when you look back, the most incredible experience in your life. Mm. You're doing it with blokes. I get quite melty about how you can be surrounded by all these like alpha guys and you can like b build like real love and like yeah. real comment. It all comes from that shared vulnerability because you've all seen each other like your lowest ebb. Yeah. Where you can't, you can only fake it for so long in those environments mm. and then people will see who you really mm. are. So when, when you get to the end, you're left with like real people. Yeah. And real recognises real, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when you were in there, was it a sense of achievement saying, well, I've made it. I've been like my dad. I'm following his footsteps. Did you want to outdo him? I don't know if I wanted to outdo him. I probably, maybe unconsciously, but there was times when I, when I was like, fuck, I am like, I'm done here. Yeah. And then the thought that he had managed to do it once before, I was like, wow, well, I, can't, I yeah. can't be done. Like, there's no <laughs> way I can go home. Like, I remember sitting on the train. So we get our green berets halfway through training. We do a commando course. And then we do sort of continuation officer training. Mm. I remember sitting on the train back to Penzance, just looking at this green berry. Like I wasn't listening to music or reading a book. I just had, it was on the table in front of me next Staring. to a can of beer. I was just looking at it. Cause With like, a can of beer. Yeah. <laughs> it's because like my lifelong yeah, goal. Yeah, yeah. And it, was just, it was all contained in this little green piece of fabric, yeah. which in reality is all it is. But for me, it represented like a lifetime of like, like ideation of them and like worship. And then it was like, it was there. And, it was and what was the next step for you then? Becoming a Marine? Does that mean, what does that actually mean? Does that mean, right, I'm going to war, I'm going to Afghan, I'm going to Iraq. What does that actually mean? Yeah, so Is we, I joined in uh, August, August 31st, 2005. Yeah. And then I went on 15 months training. So I passed out Christmas 2006. Mm. Um, and I passed out on the Thursday and on the Saturday, we were landing in Afghan to take over our troops. Are you like, joking in contact, me? Yeah, on Harriet 5, which was the, one of the very, it was the second of the big kinetic Afghans, you know, mm. didn't have body armor, it was running around, it was just gunfighting all over the country. So I, yeah, Thursday went home, said goodbye to mum and dad, back to back to camp, and flew out, and I was in there on the Saturday. Wow! And how long were you there for? That was that your. How many tours did you go on? Two, two. And yeah. so your obviously Afghan was the first tour. Yeah. Explain to me what that was like. Um, so it's like sometimes it's hard to explain to people that you don't train to do something and then not want to go and do it. Right? Yeah. So we all wanted to go and do that. Mm. So we made choices about the units we wanted to go to. And we were all trying to pick the ones that were going to Afghan. Um, but then you're, then you're landing on in Bastion and you suddenly realise like, okay, this is real. I've got to live up to these choices yeah. now. And there's, you're going to go and take over a troop of 30 guys that have been out there for two months ahead of you. I don't know, first six weeks of that, it was it was actually reasonably quiet. We were yeah. out moving up and down the Sangin Wadi. This place is the size of Wales, so it's long. Yeah just probing in and out, looking for the enemy and just enticing. And what were you looking for? We were just looking for settlements where they would kick off because then you'd be like, okay, right. They defended that quite heavily. Why? Yeah. So we'd go back and I'm like, kick off again. All right, there's something in here. That they don't want you to yeah. see. Either they're, either that's a training area or it's a place where they live. You know, the, certain places. And this is the Taliban. There. We call it the Taliban. Yeah. You know, as, as we look back, it wasn't always the Taliban. You know, it was... It was sometimes just people that were paid to fight that day. Okay. You know, we call it the Taliban. There was like overarching yeah. banner over the enemy. But yeah. of course, what we learned later was sometimes it was just it was just farmers that got paid to fight that day. Or a bit like if a load of people rolled in here, you'd mm. probably pick up a weapon too. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it wasn't always the organized Taliban, but most of the time back then it was. Yeah. Mm. The problem is there was no campaign plan from the beginning of that until the end. So yeah. all these units come out rotating through but they've all got their own plan right okay and at that time what we were looking for was a fight we were driving up and down that wadi looking for a fight because that's what the orders we were given and you were game 100 game mm. you know and you know when 
when Afghan fell a few months ago, I was in Dubai and I was talking on another podcast of the week. And I was like, I, th I found it a bit disingenuous that we're all like, oh, we were all about women's empowerment and children's education. I don't remember that. Yeah. I remember us being drilled to go and fight an enemy. And I remember us loving that, you know, and, uh, and our orders were to move up and down this huge AO and find them and kill them and then report on it. And then that's, that's what we did, you know, and we loved that. Obviously it comes with consequences sometimes. Mm. It comes with trauma, but like, that's what we trained to do and we mm. loved that. And do you find that when you were killing people, what was your mindset after that, that day? It's, it, I don't think you, I don't think you reflect on it that quickly. Okay. I think it's like, it's almost automatic because you've spent so long practicing it mm. that when it goes noisy, when it goes kinetic, you just drop into this set of patterns and rhythms and decisions. And of course it's like the temperature, like as in like your internal temperature is yeah. up and yeah. it's, it's chaos and the adrenaline's up and you're, you're aware of the consequences that are never there in training, mm. but you just go, you start going through the motions in terms of, these are the things, when this happens, these are the kind of things we do and, and you do it. And I don't think you reflect on, you know, the aftermath until much, much later. Yeah. Much, much later. And you going around with, obviously, what are you wearing? You've got machine guns. Have you, have you, do you go and uh, storm buildings with, with uh, lights on your head and... Yeah, so this is 2006. Yeah. So this is before they started investing in the equipment. So we were wearing what was called combat body armour and it was fabric. And it had like a little metal plate over the heart. Yeah. Mate, you'd have to be in a sniper really? to hit that thing. <laughs> fucking tiny. It would have done nothing for us. Yeah. Um, and we were buying our own different types of helmets back then. And we were doing everything we could to make our kit slightly better. Because mm. this was right at the beginning. And uh, and yeah, we were clearing through buildings with, uh, you know, just light order, basically. But it meant we were really quick. Yeah. And actually, I'd prefer that than when I went back later. And we were like laden down in huge amounts of body armor and... Like protection through the groin and yeah. you couldn't move you couldn't fight whereas yeah. back then we could we could run and fight what's the what are the, what are the rules back then is if someone's got a gun and is about to shoot you the rules are you shoot them first or mm. if they surrender they put their hands up in the air and they drop the gun you would then have to what what, what were the rules back yeah. then i mean if someone's got their hands in the air and they put a gun down you can never you can never shoot them yeah um rightfully so so there's there was two different types of rules of engagement um card alpha is what you're talking about and that's self-defense so yeah. if you are legitimately if you legitimately believe that yourself or your people are in danger you can use yeah. lethal force or the most appropriate force mm. um we were working on back then in fact both times i went out we were on what was called 429 alpha which gives you preemptive strike ability so if you if you deem the threat is likely to be to come out you know if you if you deem there is a likely threat there and there is likely a future threat to life yeah. you can take preemptive force okay um which uh affords you more protection in that moment yeah. but of course it puts pressure on your judgment okay and then it it's also then um open to scrutiny later mm. and you know, there's been lots of that and you say it's open to scrutiny how does that get open to scrutiny if you're there supporting your own life protecting your own life and protecting mm. your mates lives how can that ever get brought out into scrutiny what we saw with um phil shiner and the um, historical Iraqi um, trials, you know, and dragging people through the courts and, and trying to drag up any kind of story they could from in theatre to create these historical cases. We've just seen a poor guy in Northern Ireland who's still defending himself 80 years later or 50 years later. Yeah. It, that's how it was getting dragged up. And right, okay. I don't remember ever seeing it 
at the time in after action reviews or when we were reading patrol reports ever ever having scrutiny put over a judgment then it was always by mm. an external party and phil shiner later. was that lawyer yeah scumbag scumbag yeah scumbag. yeah and where's he yeah. based is he based in the uk honestly i don't know i don't know, I don't okay. know. he was you know he was a a London-based law firm, mm. and how he was allowed to get away with what he got Because away with. he, Brian Wood, I've had on the show. Yeah, what a legend. What yeah. a legend he is. He's just, just completed. Just 26 marathons. Yeah, in yeah. 26 days. Unbelievable. Yeah. And that is some one hell of a story. £31 million court case that Phil Shiner was basically yeah. saying, we're going to do you for murder and mutilation. And he was left to fight that alone. Yeah. Which makes me sick. Yeah. You know. Yeah, um, so. I don't know Brian personally. We're sort of connected. And he's a great, he's a great man. Anyone listening, yeah. go and have a listen to. I don't know what number his pod, his episode is, but it's a amazing, yeah. amazing what he went through. Yeah, mentally. Yeah, he's an incredible. Guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, what was that like for you? How long were you? How long were you in Afghan that first tour? So, what five months the first tour? Yeah, um, and then and what was that like for you? You're going there, feisty fighter. Mm -hmm. You're now a commando. You're ready for action. You've gone straight into the mix and mm. you've gone, right, bring it on. Yeah. What was that like for you, that whole five months? How would you sum that five months up for you? Like, seminal in my life, you know, but sort of, it was probably, it was probably some of my, well, from back then anyway, my sort of biggest accomplishments were in that space because yeah. I fit in that space. I made mm. sense in that space. Like, I was working for a guy that appreciated my style I was working with lads that appreciated my style. I, I felt completely at home yeah. in that environment. I loved it. Coming back though, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if, you know, I was describing that sort of quite loose guy yeah. at 18, 19. Yeah. That period of my life probably made me quite a lot looser because then I came back thinking I was bulletproof. Right, okay. Um, and I, I probably hadn't matured as much. How old were you when you came back? 23. And you felt you were, so you were landing back after having a crazy fight for five months. Mm. Did you bring that mindset back to the UK? Yeah. Did you think you were invincible? Yeah, essentially. You know, just just wild, just like, just jacked up and sort of used to living in a really tight-knit group of men with no real external influence apart from our judgment. Yeah. And so then to come back into the standard... Civilian. Civilian, but also the standard Royal Marines back at you know, the sort of the, the discipline and routine of normal life in the court. Like I, I wasn't adjusting to that very well because I'd, I was quite loose. I was quite high octane. I'd then done this thing and I'd done quite well at it. And yeah. I got a mention in dispatches for gallantry. So I'd been rewarded for... Hold on a minute. You got... Uh, did you? Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, and just explain that to the listener, what that means. Um, so for, you know, if an, if an action is deemed, you know, w worthy of being written up, yeah, the officers in charge will, will write you up for gantry wars, and then you, you, you know, if it, if it gets through the sift, you get you get presented with them. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Is there one moment that changed your life when you were out in Afghan that first time? I didn't think there was. I reflect a lot. I look back yeah. on all sorts of things a lot now. I'm much more reflective than I ever used to be. We, we probably all are. Mm. We, we got ambushed in the valley really badly, and that was part of what I got that decoration for. And that was like a really seminal fight. And I always thought that was it. And actually it wasn't. The one thing I think that I went on to do a lot of research into personal resilience and why have I been through what I've been through and I'm still okay and why aren't some other people. And there was a, we were fighting into a place called Zumbale and we'd been ambushed on three sides and there was no way out because we were, there was a river down one edge. Yeah. There was an open field on the other and there was just the enemy in front and they'd got around us. 
And we got caught in the worst place. I was lying on this track up against the bank and there was just no cover and the rounds were like f flying all around us. And there's an all, all, all the bullets just flying past your head. Yeah, and um, and bouncing through the floor. Yeah. And there's a there's a piece of ITN footage because we had an embedded camera crew with us who got yeah. ambushed with us. And uh, I remember lying on this bank with nowhere to go and I just accepted it. I just remember this like moment of acceptance. It was like, all right, any minute, one of these bullets is coming through me. Yeah. There's actually nothing I can do about that. Yeah. So I accept, I accept my position now. But when you accept that, you can then, you can then think more clearly because you're not panicking about the consequence because the consequence is coming one way yeah. or another. So I had to then do something and I had to get up and I had to move and I had to take the fight forward. And that moment of acceptance, I think, has changed my outlook okay. on the rest of my life because that perspective point, and there's some others similar, but I can remember that one so clearly because I was in such a shit position, like lying <laughs> sprawled on the floor yeah. against a bank, just, and I'd be like, right. We were lying there hiding. Well, it's just when, when you get contact from the front, yeah. your first reaction is to go down and start returning fire. Yeah. But I had troops in front of me, so I couldn't really fire. Okay. So I was just on the floor looking oh, for man. what's next. And of course, your life flashed in front of you. I can remember thinking about mum. Yeah. I don't think my life flashed in front of yeah, me. Okay. Because you're, you're still in the fight. You're yeah. still in that moment. Yeah. And the radio's going off. And, um, but I think the moment I could just accept where I'm at. Yeah. I could start looking at what I needed to do to get out of that and get everyone else out yeah. of it. And, and that stuck with me forever. I think always mm. just like, got to be ruthless in accepting who you are and where you're at and what you're doing. Because yeah. if you're lying to yourself, you know, yeah. you, you, you can't change anything yeah. for the positive. So just going back to that moment there, I'm intrigued. You say you got ambushed. What does that, what does that look like? Are you talking about 50 men, 70 men, 100 men? How many men were there of you? You said you got mm. ambushed from different angles. What was the point when you were like, shit? <laughs> all these Taliban are all around, around yeah. us. They're going to come and get us. What was that feeling like? What did so, it look like? So this this particular one was right at the end of the tour, and we'd been we'd been eyeing up Zumbale for about four months because the Paris had been in there before and had an absolute kicking. And so we'd been eyeing up Zumbale, a bit of sort of professional competition. Yeah. Um, and it just kept getting pushed. It kept getting pushed. It kept getting pushed. And I think it it was probably the second to last big op we did, and um, and we patrolled in, and like it was always the same. It's all super quiet. And we were patrolling through a village, so this wasn't... In the daytime? In the daytime, okay. yeah. Most of the things we did were, were in the daytime. Okay. Unless it was... Um, no, to be honest, most of the things we did was in the daytime. Yeah. And um, But this was like a super flat village, with compounds, rivers, and sort of irrigation fields. It mm. wasn't like fighting through the mountains okay. and some other times. And we cleared through villages, and nothing was happening. And you start to get a little bit like, this is all a bit of a fuss about nothing. Yeah. And then, as ever, they just like it just erupts, and you don't know where it's coming from. You don't know how many people are there. I always think when you hear people say, "Oh, we killed fifty people," or there was five hundred, like, how do you know? Yeah. How how do you actually know that? Because you never see these guys. Yeah. Like you can make judgments, and you can get assets that are like um, helos over the top to look. What drones? Um, or Apaches yeah. or whatever okay. was available to you yeah. at the time, and they can start making assessments of how many people you're up against. Okay. But, you know, when people give these really accurate reporting you numbers, just don't know. I always think that's yeah. exaggerated. Um, what you can judge is by the weight of fire. There was 30 of us in the ambush yeah. and there was two troops behind us, so 30 more, yeah. so 30 and 30. Yeah. And um, they'd managed to encircle us basically because they wait until you get into a place and they engage on a, on a time of their choosing, not your choosing. Yeah. So they wait till you're in the weakest place yeah. and they're in the strongest place. Yeah. And basically we'd patrolled into an area, it's like a choke point, 
where the river brought us in it was a big open heroin field oh, that's perfect for them yeah because then they had us on three sides yeah. and then you've just got to let you've just got to let the fight happen to start with yeah you can't be in charge because you've just got to let the lads fight so there's actions on mm. you know so and they've been drilled in this for years and years and years we all have so like action on front you know contact front <laughs> You, you just got to win the firefight. Okay. You got to let the lads win the firefight. Yeah. And at that time, the firefight was left, right, sorry, left, front and right. Yeah. So you just got to let them do that. Yeah. And there's nothing you can do until someone has won the firefight. So until someone has put more fire on the other yeah. than the other. Now the enemy can do that or you can do yeah. that. And while that's going on, you as the, as the leader are trying to like figure out yeah. what might be next. You know, that's, we used to call it the condor moment. So they're doing that. I'm like, fucking hell. Yeah. <laughs> 23 i'm pinned down in this fucking bank yeah. they just accepted that any moment there's a round coming yeah. through me and there's no way back so if you, the the action on an ambush like that is always to fight forward yeah because it's the thing you expect it's the thing that they expect the least it's the thing your body wants to do the least mm. but it is the only thing to do mm. what go forward go forward yeah, you've got okay. to fight into it okay um because if you try and fight back you're staying in that vulnerable yeah, position okay. you have to get on top yeah. as quickly as possible yeah and, and that's what we did and uh and then we just we just started fighting through the compound, but we we're still trying to figure out where everyone was as we were doing it. It was carnage yeah. for thirty minutes while we is that what it was about thirty minutes was that probably until you get the upper hand, yeah. And then you realise you got the upper hand, and then you're on the charge, and then you're on the charge, wow. and then we're starting to clear to the compounds. That's and now brave. Now then they're retreating, and you're you yeah. got the upper hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mate, madness. So you were there five months. Come back, you found yourself in a place where you're still super feisty and probably more feeling like you're more invincible when you landed mm. back in the UK. How long are you in the UK for? Um, so I went back to the commander training centre to train recruits then. Yeah. Um, and I'd have been back in the UK, well, I was definitely there for three years because I had, yeah, 18 months at yeah. commander training centre. But I, I got in trouble there. And so I got I got drafted to the army for 18 months as a What did you get in trouble for? Like, like I said, I was... I was addicted to the tightness yeah. of the group and the fact that we didn't want outside influence here. Yeah. And I'd been trained by a training team that had a way, probably an old school way. Yeah. I'd then gone straight to war. Yeah. Been like, well, that way is the way it should be because yeah. that's what helps us do this. And I'd gone back into a time when the pass rate for the Royal Marines was 47% yeah. historically. They've never been able to get a pass rate higher than 47. So they needed to hit 60 for yeah. financial return on investment. And there was lots of tension in the system where some of the senior officers were trying to, I'm not going to say they're making it easier, but they were trying to get that number up, you know, and there was there was friction between us as the tactical teams yeah. and them as the senior strategists. Yeah. And they were trying to encourage us to let things go, let things slide, okay. change this, change okay. that. Okay. And then there were some of us that were just too truculent and stuck in our ways, and mm -hmm. I was one of them. And I, uh, I just refused, but I looked back. Look back, and I was overly robust with some very young people, and I was probably unfair because I had, I had not adjusted my temperament from war to training young people. Yeah, and some of these are sixteen years old, right? Yeah, <laughs> like they're not thirty-year-old. Yeah. You're right, and yeah. and I look back, and it was, you know, it's a time of life I'm not particularly proud of because mm. I should have been better, mm. and I wasn't, and I was making mistakes. It wasn't at the time through a lack of. I wasn't trying to be an asshole. Yeah. I thought I was doing the right thing. But then everyone thinks they're doing the right thing at the moment, yeah. don't they? Like, even Well, you've got your standards, essentially. That's what right. I'm sensing, right? Yeah. I just, I probably could have gone about it in a different way. Okay. This, I don't think I'd have to change the standard, but yeah. I, I could have just been 
more diplomatic. I didn't mm. have to be so just physical, physical, stuck in my ways mm. with it. And uh, did you learn that from your old man? You reckon? Do you reckon that old school was passed down to you? And you're like, right, I've just gone back from war. This is how it is. This is how we've won our part of the war. This is how you m new marines should be. Mm. I think um, I think there's there's parts of my childhood where you pick up on stuff. I'm like I idolise my old man, mm. but you know, I've, I've never seen him in a fist fight or anything like that. But you know, him talking about stuff like that yeah. when I'm young, and I'm like, okay, well that's what we do, yeah. you know. And I can see how people would respond to yeah. him. I'm like, okay, that's what we do. And things like him telling me from about ten, never trust a man that doesn't drink. Mm. Okay, right. You know, so there's things I can remember. Um, picking out of my dad as as I grew up, yeah. thinking, okay, well, that's, that's what a man is. That, that's mm. how it needs to be. Mm. And probably not all of it was particularly healthy. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I probably spent the last 10 years trying to pick some of that and like yeah. soften myself down yeah, a bit. Yeah, yeah, Like in England. Do you get to decompress? Do you get to go anywhere to, is anyone there helping with your mindset and your mind and your mind health? And Or are you just coming straight back into the UK and you're going to have to deal with civilian life? Yeah, mate, I am. Um, you do, yes. So like back then, this is still 2011, yeah. which to me feels like yesterday. But it's yeah, 10 years right. Ago. It's 10 years. It's rare, isn't it? I'm yeah. saying. Yeah. And things have changed a lot, yeah. right? And it would be perfectly okay for me and you to sit and have a pint now and talk about our mental health. Yeah. 10 years ago, as a, as a Marine, that certainly was not, that was what, not what you did. What, that was a pure sign of weakness? Totally. Okay. You just, that, whether it was explicitly said or not, you just, you never did. And the lads were getting snagged, you know, yeah. lads were getting, uh, they were having trouble processing some of the stuff we'd done. I do remember coming back through Cyprus, Bloodhound Camp, for decompression, this two-day decompression in there. And they brought the Padre in. And I, the last thing the lads want to do is talk to a vicar. Yeah. You know, I get why they're doing that. Yeah. But that's not who the lads will talk to. Yeah. And, you know, they need to talk to someone that they... has been there and got the T-shirt and the respect. Yeah, yeah. And is being vulnerable back to them. Yeah. That's the only way it would yeah. work. Um, and that's what I've seen more now. Senior blokes that have done some stuff airing their problems does encourage now people to talk about it more. Mm. But in 2010, 11, that was mm. not, that was not the case. So they, we came back and you just go back to life. Most of us then get drafted to different units. Yeah. So then you, you're moving away from all the people you've been with as well. Yeah. And you just go and get on with life. Mm. Um, but for me, that was, that was basically the start of the end then. Cause I was on a 12 month rundown period to becoming a civilian then. And what was that like for you? You knew it was at the end. Were you frustrated? Yeah. Were you still had that, fight in your belly that you want to get back into war but you know you can't what was that like the overwhelming feeling from that that period of my life sort of the overwhelming memory it's just like ground rush it's like all of a sudden the the core's getting further away from me civilian streets getting closer yeah. and like oh what, what the fuck am i gonna be i haven't really got any educational qualifications yeah. like you know i'm married to all i'm not sure i've necessarily made a good choice with yeah. you know like what's what's my life look like next you know and that's, you know, that level of uncertainty is hard to deal with. Mm. How did you deal with it? Um, the way I still deal with it now is sort of, you've just got to start taking action. But like when I was talking about accepting where you're at, yeah, and yeah. just accepting where I'm at, and then I uh, I basically just hit the streets of London. And I spoke to anybody that would have a coffee with me, anyone. I remember going to see the first guy. He was, he was like, oh. Um, what do you want to do? I said, I want to work in the city. He said, what do you mean by the city? I was like, well, London. <laughs> he was like, well, no. he was like no. I genuinely said yeah. that. He went, no, mate, London's the financial yeah. district. Oh, yeah. I went, okay, right, yeah, that'll do. That'll do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he was like, mate, you've got a lot. So then I just started reading and networking. And everyone that had a coffee with me, I made sure I didn't leave unless they were going to choose me to two more people. Yeah, quality. And well then done. I never left that unless they were going to choose me to two more people. Yeah, well done. I just built this, like, 
network of people that um on the whole thought I was an okay guy yeah um and all the time I'd, like, I'd write every meeting I'd write a note down he'd say something like mm. amortize or mm. um balance sheet mm. and I'd write it yeah, down yeah, yeah. I'd go home I'd google it and the next time I'd know what that was and I'd try and use that word in the next yeah. conversation right amortize yeah and get it in there like <laughs> they look at me like oh. <laughs> it's not in the right context yeah. yeah yeah I'll have a couple of amortize <laughs> And um, I did that for six or seven months, just constantly. I probably saw 300 people yeah. um, for 300 coffees. And eventually I started getting in front of more and more senior people mm. that were decision makers mm. who could take a punt on someone who they thought was a bit of a good egg. And a leader. And had a bit of a background and might have some potential. And yeah. that's what happened in the end. Ending up at Deutsche Bank. Um, oh, painful. I don't think anything worse, mate. All that, all that effort, all that work. <laughs> To have a really shit job. Oh my god, being <laughs> unhappy working in a bank. Hey, it was the worst three years of my life. I bet. How on earth did you last three years working in the city? So for the first six months, you know, the challenge was the challenge of catching up and being an imposter again. Yeah. Was fueling my enthusiasm. I think I've only just lost this feeling that if I'm not got this job, no one else is going to employ me because yeah. I haven't got any qualifications. Yeah. I think that's only left me in the last couple of years. Yeah. And I was definitely like, well, I've got this. Like. I need to hold on to this because yeah. like no one else is going to give me a chance, um, um, and really that kept me there much longer than if I'd backed myself a bit more. Mm. But I was just I think I was trapped by the fact that my wife didn't want to leave London, had to pay a mortgage in Twickenham, yeah, and I didn't think anyone else was going to give me a job yeah. at that stage. But that um, feeling of what waking up at five in the morning wearing a suit going to work, what, what on earth? What it, a mate. contrast! I just wearing this grey suit on the tube to go to a bank to look like everyone else and you know not that everyone else is bad it just it wasn't me to yeah. sit at my desk the only thing that kept me sane I've got a, I've got a woman's tattoo on my back yeah. on my shoulder and I knew it was there and I had this like I could like, almost feel it yeah. you know Jen you yeah. know but then you know I started boxing to find like an outlet I yeah. went back to rugby to find an outlet I boozed too much yeah. for an outlet yeah. everything was trying to get me out of the situation that was the problem I had to change the situation mm. and actually you know you're asking about my demons had I not changed that situation, life could have gone in a very different yeah. path. Because I think that's when more veterans suffer is when they don't find their new purpose and yeah. their new reason in civic and their new identity. And they're in something they hate because they have to pay a bill. Mm. And then I think that creates this sort of nasty separation. Mm. And that's when some of the, the worst stuff can happen for yeah. us. You know, like you push on from alcohol and stuff. Did you ever get tempted by drugs? Like, not in a... Not in a way where I'd been addicted by it, but like you know, all dabbled in it. Mm. Um, but you know, would I have ever become a drug drug addict? No, probably not. Mm. So you knew that addiction wasn't there. Don't think so. No, like that. That's not part of my life. Mm. The way booze has always been part of my life, yeah. and the way adrenaline has always been part of my yeah. life, and um, laddish culture mm. has always been part of my life. Um, and scrapping yeah. to a certain extent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those, those are the, the core. Right. Yeah. You know. Yeah. What about the um, the feeling of boozing? Do you find that you booze to suppress any feelings that have happened in the past? I get what what used to happen before I saw this counselor. She she changed a lot in me. Um, was I would get super excited by five six lads being around a yeah. table, like we, like we all do. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so right. I get like really overexcited. Yeah. 
because it's recreating in a way. So it's not suppressing. Yeah. It's almost recreating those feelings I used Absolutely. to crave. Yeah. Okay. This tightness amongst blokes, and honesty, alpha blokes, yeah. and like the banter and the honesty. Yeah. yeah. Like, but what I would do, like, it's too over excited. Yeah. And then just get like absolutely wasted. Yeah. Um. So I was trying to like learn how to put a handbrake on that and enjoy, enjoy the good bits of it without then getting into the OT too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So moving on, talk to me about the next steps. You left the city, had enough. Mm. What are the next steps for you? Tell me about the uh, React. Yeah. So, I mean, I went to React via. I was at Help for Heroes for a couple of years, well, three years first. Mm. But React was. Um, what is React? React's a it's a it's a charity. It's a disaster response charity that takes military veterans and repurposes them as disaster responders. Yeah. It used to be called Team Rubicon, came yeah. out of America. And it, um, that was a huge turning point professionally, personally. Lots of things all came what year to we talking? be in React. Um, I started there in 2017. Yeah. Yeah, I finished this year, yeah. 2017. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, all of my sort of reflection on resilience and why we could do these things that we could do and what it meant when we're no longer able to do it this lack of purpose mm -hmm. and how how corrosive that can be we were starting to recreate and react and yeah. what we're starting to see was the harder the challenge we put out there in terms of we need to get um relief teams into the back end of indonesia where no one else can get to to live wow. in the field the harder we made it, the better the person that was coming because they were craving, like I was craving, really? this purpose, this desire to serve again, this desire to be part of something bigger than yourself, you know, to mm. to be around people that are surrounded by your values and to to do some really gnarly shit and they're not going to get paid for either because that's that's what we were craving. Like this, that's what attracted us to the military in the first place. Yeah, and yeah. you were getting that, you were getting that buzz again. Absolutely, you know. Really? And, and we were building it, like, you're an entrepreneur you love building stuff mm. like we're building this thing out of nothing so when i started it was um it was basically about to go out of business it hadn't the model they bought from the states wasn't working yeah they were trying to focus domestically and it was all a little bit sort of mum and pop shop yeah, and they're okay. doing like sort of cleaning up gravestones and it's all good stuff yeah. but it wasn't gritty yeah okay and i was like no there's like there's these areas of the world that no one can get aid into mm. it's too dangerous and it's like that's that's what we're going to do wow. we'll build this thing that was amazing. So that way you were there, you were to get aid to all these countries they couldn't get. Yeah, so like when Mozambique got rolled over by Cyclone a Day three years ago. So um, hold on, hold on. Mozambique got rolled over by what? Cyclone a Day. Okay. Three yeah. three years ago. Three years ago. Yeah. Two years ago. Um basically the cyclone went over. Yeah. But what caused more damage was the rain that followed and the and the sea surge. Okay. It basically flooded the inland district of Beirut. So it, it completely changed the topography of the landscape to create inland islands that were completely cut off. Oh, wow. And the United Nations, um, so all the non-governmental organizations, the other charities, yeah. were like, well, we can't get there. So they just hatched out this area on the map. Like, well, that's unreachable. Yeah. And we were like, well, we can get there. And they're like, well, you can't. Like, we can. <laughs> yeah. So we'd, uh, we'd send teams forward on foot by boat and by helicopter. We'd drop them in, just like we used to do with soldiers. Yeah move forward on foot, confirm there was a community there, yeah. how many people there, we'd create a landing pad for a helicopter, we'd then call the aid forward, distribute all these people. These people were like dying. So this is like the last days that they'd have survived. Wow. And we're putting people into that. And of course that's dangerous because yeah. you can create panic. Yeah. And uh, teams of eight to 12 people getting there, distributing aid, then moving off, sleeping in deserted buildings, doing the same thing for 27 days, Jeez. living on 800 calories a day, moving through these districts. So that's what we built React to do. Like this 
that no other NGO could do. You know, they would get into places no one could get into and they would survive longer than anyone could survive for to get aid to the people that would have perished if it hadn't been for them. Wow. And you were pulling all the best men in who were retired. Men and women. Men yeah. and women, all the best ones who were retired yeah. and wanted to get that feeling back again. Yeah, so this wasn't about And none of them got paid? Not as volunteers, no. Obviously, they didn't have to pay anything either, so we paid for their flights and their food, and their, but yeah. yeah, none of them got paid. Um, so yeah, this wasn't a this wasn't a veterans charity f- to be good for them in terms. Of, it wasn't like help for heroes. Yeah. We were selective, so yeah. we wanted good people yeah. to come and do things. They got a huge amount of benefit from it in return because yeah. they were getting that purpose back yeah. and that belonging, and then they could go back to their life, whatever it was, building site, mortgage broker, whatever. Okay, you know, because they could do it. So it's a month away. A bit like being on the RLI, a bit like the bleeper goes off, you come and do your thing, and then you go back to your life. Okay. Again. What other countries you've been to? Um, as React, we did three times into Indonesia. We did Mozambique, we did the Bahamas, and we did the British Virgin Islands in my time there. Plus, what um, were you doing in somewhere t- like Bahamas and, and British Virgin Islands, where wealthy countries? Um, well, 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 you say wealthy. Obviously, there's certain parts, parts of there's of also it. yeah, it's also very poor as well. Yeah, yeah. When you see those Haitian communities, that's right. Yeah. So when the Bahamas got rolled over by, um, I forget the name of the hurricane that went over there last year, but and the British Virgin Islands got hit by um, Hurricane Irma and Maria, yeah. the two strongest um, hurricanes on record. That's right. So we were sending response teams in just the way we were for, for Mozambique. So how many men would you be sending someone in like Bahamas or British Virgin Islands? We would deploy probably 40 to 50 in the first wave. Um, well, first thing is two people in. So we yeah. get a recce team in really small and light. We never wanted to put strain on an already strained system. Yeah. So you send the very minimum in, and that's the military approach to achieve the maximum with the minimum. Yeah. So we were never wasteful. So we get two people in, determine what the mission set might be. They're feeding back to me, and then we started to build the response. And then within a week, we'll be looking to get the first wave in between yeah between forty and sixty people, and then we're looking to get them out of the district centre as quick as possible, away from the Why? built up areas. Because the suffering is out in the Oodaloo. Okay. And that's where no one ever goes because okay. it's too hard. Okay. My frustration with the charity sector is that too many, too many of the big ones as well that are very wealthy, are too, they're too preoccupied by the presentation of what they're doing. So as long as they get there and they're shown to be doing something, yeah. that's enough. I'm like, no, no, no. You've got to be effective. Right, to be okay. effective, you've got to go where it's needed. Yeah. And where it's needed is normally where it's hardest to get to wow. and where you can get the least publicity. But that's the right thing to do. Yeah. And it used to grip my shit. Yeah. Uh, it still does. Yeah. Um, so we were wholly bent on getting teams right out into the sticks, into the remote areas, into the cut off places where those people are going to be left to die yeah. if those teams don't get there. Bloody hell. Mm. And then what? Roll on, roll on 2020, COVID came about. How yeah. were you, what, what, was, what, what was going on then with reacting yourself? So we were called, we were still called Team Rubicon then. Yeah. And um, we'd done some good work. We never got the traction. Probably um, what I just said about those charities that are really good at advertising themselves yeah. and we're doing this good work. That's a failure on me, right? So yeah. we were doing some great work, but I wasn't raising enough money. Mm. And we were constantly living in this hand to mouth environment. And at one, you know, there were different times we'd deploy, like Mozambique, I took us to six weeks liquidity. So like I was like staring down bankruptcy and we still had teams deployed out there. And I was like, look at what we're doing. How yeah. can we be struggling for money so much yeah. when and it doesn't cost us much money to run. We were small and lean and yeah. we weren't wasteful. And where was the money coming from? Major donors, corporate okay. partners. Okay. Um, you know, at that stage, we didn't have we didn't have a big donor base. So yeah. our pipeline was really narrow. So we had Imarsat was a big, big donator to us. We had a few 
um, high net worth individuals. Okay. And often when we when we threw ourselves into something like Mozambique or the Bahamas, we'd be fundraising from people with an interest in the region at the time through social media and various other things. Yeah. Um, and so you could see the money running out. Constantly. And but you as who you are, you're like, there's more people to save, there's more people, more lives to save. The, yeah, I, I was I was led by the mission, not the balance sheet. I just yeah, I just had right. faith that it would sort itself out. Yeah. If we just kept doing the right thing, yeah. lead with the chin, like do what others should have been doing. Yeah. At some point someone will recognise it. I was just that was my faith. Yeah. You know, I I believed at some point if we kept doing the right thing, someone would have to notice. Um and this is powerful stuff, isn't it? <laughs> really is. I don't know, I don't know. It really is. And then we came. Obviously, Christmas nineteen went, and we had a load of fundraising activity. But we'd just been in the Bahamas, yeah. Um, so we built some some good connections there, some wealthy people in the Bahamas, mm. and we'd done some good stuff. And there was a big ball planned for us up in the Guildhall in London. The yeah. Lord Mayor was throwing it for us. Yeah. I was like, oh. it felt like yeah. we just yeah. crested this moment. I'm sure you remember what it's like when you're building business or something like. Oh, maybe I've just got over that yeah. like horrible yeah, hump, absolutely. and it felt like we just had, and then COVID rolled mm. over the hill, right? Yeah, and that it cancelled the ball. It cancelled. Um, we had a big skydive thing planned that had thousands of people. We had like big chunks of money coming yeah. in, and it all got cancelled. Yeah. And I'm looking at the wall like, oh shit, like, this is this might this might be I might run out of ideas here. Yeah, and. Um, as COVID started to develop, the my chairman at the time, uh, was called Nick Parker, former Fourth General, who's the head of the land forces, um, got a phone call from government saying, what do we do here? Mm. And he said, you go speak to Richard. And we got them pulled in to do mission analysis for um, Secretary of State for the um, Culture, Media and Sport. Because yeah. he was in charge of the voluntary sector. Yeah. Bear on the voluntary sector was also the Red Cross, Oxfam, yeah, these huge else, yeah. organizations. Yeah. But he had no idea how to bring that to bear because they're not they're not operators. They don't understand how to, to to work in that space. And that was, you know, that was the moment of faith. That was the that was it. If I just keep pushing and mm. keep fighting and doing the right thing, something we'll pop, and this was yeah. it. And basically we got pulled in then. It wasn't plain sailing from there. We did this mission analysis. And the problem was at the time, so this is March. Okay, right March at the 2020. Yeah, right yeah. at the beginning. Yeah. Um, the crisis was unfolding. It was dynamic and it was... It was so all complex. your energy was focusing, focusing now in the UK? All of it in the UK. Okay. And because what I could see was this need starting to appear that no one had any idea how to coordinate. Yeah. Because the UK is split into 48 resilience forums and they were all designed to support each other in times of crisis. So if it was a flood or anything like that. Yeah no one ever expected them all to have to stand up at the same time. Right, okay. so there, was, there wasn't okay. a resource. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the whole country is now like at tilt yeah. because people are in lockdown, people are getting sick, the hospitals are full. Like We were we were facing some really serious crises at the time, all compounding on top of each other mm. that the public never really got to see because in Italy, people were dying in the street and thankfully we never got there. Yeah. But we were close. And was that because the hospitals are full? Full. You know, and, and you know, that was what we were dealing with at the time. But from the centre, from, from Parliament, no one had a clear view of what was happening in the regions because there was no structure yeah. to, to do that. So I was like, the first thing you have to build, like you do in any war, is build a common operating picture. Yeah. You need to be able to see the version of the truth that's happening everywhere so you can make informed priority decisions around where to send resource. Yeah. 
And that resource could have been PPE, it could have been money, it could have been hospital beds, it, you know, anything, resources, yeah. anything. But like, if you don't know where it's needed to go, you're just, you're just pissing in the wind. Mm. And they were pissing in the wind. Mm. And, you know, we, we described how we would build it and we described how we'd bring all the big players in and we're like, right, we're so good So basically to go. you took the lead. Someone has to in these times, yeah. right? Okay. And it's not that I was leading that response, but I was facing into the problem with yeah. my team yeah. while everyone else was backing up. Yeah, okay. Like, if we keep backing up, this will get too far away from us and someone yeah. has to fucking walk forward at that moment. So you're leading, like you said and earlier, leading from the chin again. Just lead with the chin mm. and see what happens. <laughs> and, um, and then what the government did was they promised us, I can't remember the exact figure, it, was a, it, was a, it wasn't it was a big money at the time, about half a million quid. So they said, react, do this, do this, half a million quid, yeah. um, which was enough for us to build it. And then we, we thought we'd raise the rest on the top. And they then started briefing us in the press. So back in uh, March, April, they were talking about military planners. And on yeah. front page of every newspaper, was military planners coming in. That was react, that was yeah. us. Okay. And then we got briefed by um, Secretary of State for Defence. And so then all these organisations started looking Come at us, okay. going like, okay, well, where are you? Yeah. And I'm saying the government, where's that money? Yeah. And they're like, yeah, actually, <laughs> we don't think we need to pay you anymore. We don't think we need to do that anymore. Right. I was like, yeah, but you've just, you've told everyone we're going to do it. Yeah. Now they're looking at us. Yeah. So we've got to do it. Yeah. And so then we got compressed again. We're facing weeks of, like literally a few weeks of money left on the balance sheet. And um, BlackRock came in for us. Did they? Um, in a big way. And they gave us half a million quid. Um to get us over that first yeah. hump, to build this capability. And and at that time, we were the only organisation that had a, a solid view of what was happening everywhere in the country. Mm. So we could see crises emerging. We could see that PPE thing coming. Mm. We're trying to tell government they're not listening. And then, like, it was just the most... It was the most incredible time of life, but the most frustrating because there was yeah. so much avoidable stuff that we could have just... Yeah. What if you had a pound note? You had more money? If government was better aligned to make decisions at the speed of relevance. If people were more focused on doing the right thing instead of what's best for them. Yeah. Like, because everyone, and I'm talking about charities and businesses as well, were thinking about what people might say in the future instead of what was needed to happen. Right, there okay. Then, yeah. What did you see? What did you see? Was it different in the press that that people who watched the news were listening to and reading to actually what was actually going on? Was it dramatised? Was it exaggerated? No, I, it's hard to remember because it was fucked, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> like the whole thing. Yeah. But I well, think, no one knew. Is and the that's unknown? the problem. Yeah. We don't know what's true anymore, yeah. do we? No. You know, that's why I don't watch the news. No. I don't listen to anything. And I've stopped. I don't listen. But, for 20 months, I don't listen to a single film. Yeah. I don't want any, anything neg going into my no. mind. I, yeah. And, I, and I, I think if you'd told me that 18 months ago, I'd have probably judged you. Mm. But I do exactly the same now. Mm. And I don't need it. No, I don't need it. Because actually, I don't think it's true half yeah. the time. It's all on an agenda. Yeah. At that time, we needed strong, hard leadership yeah. that won't make everyone happy, but would have got us through a crisis. Yeah. Whereas I think we flip-flacked. Mm. And then there was some of our, these delivery organisations like us in the middle, we were working really closely with the army at the time, who could never get clear direction. Mm. And secretaries of state were fighting over who was going to get the headline. So like the, the Secretary of State for Defence was fighting with, um, uh, what was it called? The health secretary that got caught. Mm. Hancock. Hancock. Yeah. Got kissing your secretary. <laughs> They were fighting over who was going to get the yeah. the credit, the um, the kudos for the Nightingale hospitals. Yeah, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You just need the fucking done. hospitals, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, what were you what were you asked to do? What were you tell me? Tell me in a real simple way. What were you asked to do? What did you guys do? First thing, build the intelligence picture. Yeah, what is happening in all these towns and cities around yeah. the country? That was the first thing, and the second was plug the gaps. 
So when the Nightingale hospitals were coming up, they couldn't. So what do you explain the Nightingale hospitals? The Nightingale hospitals were the temporary hospitals that okay. were put up in O2 in London, yeah. um, Cardiff Arms Park yeah. in Wales. We were helping kit them out. So that the military would go in and it would be a hospital ready for overflow? Yeah. Okay. And then, but even at that point, we still weren't, you know, you said that it was COVID that set us alight. It was, yeah. but still at this point, early in the crisis, it wasn't. The, what happened then was the death rate started to rise. Yeah. And it went, you know, April, May, you know, sort of April-ish, May-ish, yeah. the death rate yeah. was going through the roof. And we were over a thousand a day then. And a thousand a day where? In England. A thousand a day. For, yeah, but, but was that, did, did it overflow? Yeah. So basically what happened was the death rate then overwhelmed the NHS's yes. mortuary capability. Okay. And there was nowhere for this excess death to go. And and this was the moment where, had it not been for some organisations, we could have seen what we saw in Italy. Right, okay. And there was there was nowhere, there was no one that was going to take responsibility for these mortuaries. And no charity would touch that. Because yeah. it's just, who's going to put a charity volunteer handling dead bodies in a mortuary? Yeah. Right, we'll do it. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll take that. And my, I remember my board... Because we've got a board of trustees, yeah. we're like, are you sure about this? Yeah. I was like, yeah, they will come and do it. Cause they were like, who's going to volunteer for this? Yeah. I said, soldiers will. Because yeah. I want to do the worst part of this. Yeah. They want to do the grittiest thing because they can say they did the grittiest thing yeah. again. And that's what happened. Wow. And we put up um, temporary mortuaries all over the country, which is where I forget the exact numbers of deceased that we had to handle. It was thousands and thousands really? and thousands and thousands. But you were picking up dead bodies. It had been delivered to these mortuaries. Yeah. Um, at one point, they'd been delivered in um, hired white vans because they'd run out of um, all the funeral vehicles because it was just it was just carnage. So yeah. funeral directors were having to hire white vans and, and kit them out with scaffold poles. So they were turning up all these deceased bodies and all these like um, new temporary mortuary facilities. Headley mm. Court, where the military rehab centre mm. for Afghan, we turned that into one massive mortuary, and uh, and that was our volunteers that walked towards that at that time, and they kept doing that for about nine months. Mm. So that was exactly that was, that's what you're doing every day for nine months. Um, that we were doing, um, we we're supporting the community, the smaller community charities that were overwhelmed, mm. the logistics, and um, we were supporting food insecurity, and mm. um, and we were getting dragged further and further into the NHS, which was coming under more and more pressure. Yeah, and people have volunteered in the NHS forever, but they volunteer on the front desk or yeah. they they volunteer to give sweets to kids. Yeah. We were getting pulled into frontline NHS care and it uh, it basically ended with us um, putting teams into the ICU wards mm. so um, you know, one of the one of the proudest things I did was to go and do some shifts with them and, and watch our volunteers on an ICU ward acting as a nurse you know flipping people over cleaning shit out of their ass yeah. changing their piss bags yeah. you know trying to talk to them cleaning them because they're, they're in ICU they can't move yeah. and that was the first time in the history of the NHS that any volunteers been on the front line bloody hell yeah how long are you in how long are you in react for four years just four under four years. years yeah just i just want to touch on you making the front page of the newspapers yeah <laughs> <laughs> you're <laughs> yeah. You getting away with that yeah, 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 yeah. um tell us tell us your version of what happened that night yeah um you know this uh, is part of my unhealthy relationship with alcohol again but um team rubicon was formed by an ex-US Marine Corps guy called Jake Wood yeah. and Will McNulty. Yeah. Two best mates, flew into Haiti. They weren't best mates, right? they became best mates. Yeah. And they built this organisation. They then fell out, as founders often do. Yeah. Team Rubicon America stayed. Will went to form Team Rubicon Global. Yeah. 
to then come back and fight Jake. Yeah. Basically, they okay. were they were they were vying for supremacy. Yeah, and this context is important. Yeah, um, we were the first offshoot, and everything is is going pretty well. Um, but the the, the politics of that fight, I won't dive into it too much. Mm. But that was omnipresent, and Will, Jake was always trying to undo Will. Yeah. Will was always trying to yeah. undo Jake, and they were constantly looking for a Jimmy Bar. And we had got to a point where actually America was causing us problems reputationally because of the way they behaved internationally. Their brand was massive, our brand was tiny, mm. and we were also causing them problems because we were doing this really risky stuff that they didn't understand. And this is under React? This is Team Rubicon. Team still. Rubicon in UK. We rebranded um, in the middle of COVID. Yeah. Um, so we launched OpReact yeah. for COVID, yeah. knowing that we were going to change brand at some point. Okay. Um, and we rebranded before the newspaper articles. Of course, the newspaper article made it look, that's why yeah. we rebranded. And um, gone to the leadership conference in Colorado, and Jake and I had gone for Jake's the CEO. Yeah, had gone for a, a few beers off site, and he had this plan to take over the network. And I was like, "Yeah, mate, that doesn't that doesn't work for me because that that takes all of my freedom yeah. away." Yeah. And so we started having a bit of a heated round, but it was just a heated round between two CEOs. Yeah. It was fine. And um, I'd gone to a campfire that night, and it was lots of beers that was telling stories, and Jake's like. I want I want to hear from CEO of England, CEO of the UK. Just stand up, and like you're surrounded by other veterans, mm. and you're drinking around a fire, mm. and you're telling war stories. Mm. Now, in my mind, that creates an environment where, okay, this is safe. Yeah, yeah. back to talking about six around the table. Yeah, it's time. Yeah, um, tell my story, get pissed, and <laughs> to me, once you're in that environment, how do I describe it? When you're in that environment, it needs to be safe. Mm. As in, if then we get a bit leery with our stories, mm. like, I don't think you can really complain about that because yeah. you're encouraging that. Yeah. But um, wh what I don't remember is what happened in, in this dining room where I'm shit-faced and I get challenged by two young civilians for, like, swearing and my war stories. Yeah. And I call them a snowflake cunt and yeah. call them ungrateful pricks and yeah. something else. And, of course, that, that gets bigger than Ben-Hur. Mm. But that wasn't what got me on the front page of the paper. That was the first night. I'm then told I've upset these people. So I, I go and I say something to the next day. And they're like, okay, that's fine. That's fine. Two nights later, I walk into the, the accommodation of the YMCA where we're staying. And there's two volunteers getting down on it on the uh, on the sofa in the in the lounge. And this is like open to everyone. Yeah. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to put it back in your pants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and we've all had a beer, but I'm not I'm not shy. It's yeah. like, what's the other side? And I'm like, everyone, you calm yeah. down. You know, we're sitting, we're chatting, we're sitting there. And um, it's like one, two in the morning and she's she's Canadian, he's Australian. She was meant to have left at about three in the morning and um, at two in the morning, she's still downstairs. So eventually she goes back to bed. We all go to bed. I wake up in the morning, the Canadian CEO, who I thought was a mate of mine, has emailed me, the Australian CEO and the American CEO, filing two sexual harassment complaints, one against me and one against the Australian CEO Ugh. from the same the same Canadian girl that we'd put to bed at two in the morning. I was like, mate, the Aussie guy wasn't even with me yeah. at the time. And uh, that, that set off a whole chain reaction. I think she'd gone to bed and was embarrassed that I'd walked in on her yeah. and thought I was going to grass on her, yeah. which I wouldn't have done. I wouldn't have given yeah. a shit. And she'd also filed a complaint about the Aussie CEO, who wasn't even in the room at the time, yeah. about something else. And then I think Jake saw his opportunity because then the the rap sheet that came yeah. across the pond was, was that 
there's about 30 different complaints of sexual harassment from 30 different people, but they're all anonymized. And some of them were like, yeah, we saw Richard walking through the park and there was girls about 20 meters away. And we just knew that that was a risk. So we moved them and yeah. it was like, it's a fucking hatchet job. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but in that circumstance, as a charity CEO, you're, you're guilty until proven innocent. Yeah. You've got to, you just got to, you know, prove your case. And mm. you know, so I went through a two, two to three month fight then to prove my, my innocence. I admitted to the, the first night because that probably did happen. I don't really remember what happened in that dining room, but it sounds like something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, you know, yeah. That, you know, yeah. I could almost hear my own words. Yeah, in, yeah, 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 like, yeah. All right, that probably Fair. happened. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like yeah. I'm no saint, right? Yeah. But then this like whole concocted um, thing, and basically. I'll come to the papers in a minute, but uh, that, that Canadian girl came out only about six months ago to say that the American CEO and the Canadian CEO put her up to it. Really? Uh, yeah. After six months, you know, and my God. this was the day before my wedding. I got suspended and, you know, this is pretty big shit at the time. What year was this? 2019. 19. Yeah. Um, and then we'd launched React to COVID. So we're going great guns now. Yeah. That's all in the past. Yeah. Going great guns. America and Global come to their final shootout and um, they're in the final hurrah. And I think Will McNulty leaked the story because we were leaving the network. Who's he? he was the CEO of the Global Okay. Part. We were leaving the network yeah. to go and become React. Yeah, okay. He needed us in the network because we were the biggest gun in that fight. Yeah. And he leaked, I'm sure he leaked it, um, to distract me. Yeah. To hopefully keep hold of us longer. Yeah. But of course, all it did was then just affect our mission here yeah. and what we were trying to do. Because this was the summer and we were still fully rocking and rolling in COVID. Yeah. So now I've got all of that pressure. So this is summer 2020 now? Yeah. Wow. I've got all the pressure of trying to deliver COVID. And that's like 450 straight days of not sleeping. Plus still trying to raise money all the time. And you've got this looming overview. And now I'm on the front page of the Daily Mail and the Times for something really bad. I've had loads of good press all up to it. Yeah. And so now all the sponsors that I'm lining up, oh, like, what the man. fuck? And I just, I want, if I could have reached across the pond and yeah. run his neck. Yeah. Because it was all about him. Yeah. It was all about their and personal fight. And that's Will fight. McNulty. And Jake. It could have been okay. either one of them, but okay. it was their personal fight. They were slinging it out. Yeah. And they were litigating each other like yeah. they were two FTSE 100 companies. Yeah. These are charities. Yeah. You know? And, um, you know, managed to weather it, managed to absorb the blows. It wasn't very comfortable. In fact, it was the least comfortable time of my life. Really? I would go back to Afghan and all do all of that stuff than ever be on so the front when, page so of paper again. Do you, do you, did you know you were going to be on the front page or was it literally wake up in the morning and go, oh shit. Mate, so um, it, I, got, I got about a three day run in. So basically the, the, it had been building for a couple of weeks over the pond yeah. and I got about a three day head start to say that I was going to be on, that that story was going was gonna to break. Um, and then of course what happens is you're up on hold. Yeah. You know, so um, I was waiting, the, the Telegraph phone, they wanted to do a follow-on piece. And I was like, look, I just want to get my head down. Like, yeah. look, you know, we've written about you a lot. We want to get your story out there. I was like, nah, nothing. That was the night that um, uh, Dominic Cummings drove to yeah. Barnard Castle. Yeah. Saved my bacon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's a great guy. Yeah, he's a <laughs> I bought him that pint. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but... Um, they were going to do a follow-on piece because these things can like roll and roll and roll. And what made it more uncomfortable is, so that story was that story. What, there was was nothing, the, what were the headlines? Because um, I was linked to Prince Harry at the time as well. They said, I think the Daily Mail one was, what do you mean I can't say? Yeah. Um, charity boss linked to Prince Harry in drunken rampage through YMCA. 
And the Times is with something like, I can't remember what the Times was, but yeah, something like Drunken Charity Boss Calls People Snowflakes or something. Yeah. Um, Linked to Prince Harry's charity. It was all about my links to Prince Harry and my board. I had the National Security Advisor and the Cabinet Secretary on my board. I had General Nick Parker on board. So they were like, this is public interest. Yeah. In reality, they wanted to have a dig at Harry. Yeah. And the, the front page was a picture of me and then and then Harry. Yeah. Um, but what made it worse was anybody then with an axe to grind could have a have a pop. Yeah. And there was a volunteer who we'd recently dismissed who then phoned the same same reporter and accused me of covering up um, sexual assault abroad um, on, on operations that I wasn't on, but said mm. that I knew about these sexual assaults yeah. I covered up. And then, of course, I've got two days to reply. Oh, fuck So man. I had to prove that... Uh, that these things that he, he was saying were, weren't true. So, because then all of a sudden, then it's snowballing. Yeah, of oh, look, he does sexual assault and yeah. he covers it up. And, yeah, and, and, oh, God. And, mate, I was watching my life just yeah. crumble. How did you deal with that? Get on the piss? <laughs> no, 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 I was keeping my head very, <laughs> very low at that time. Yeah. No. It did it affect of, you? Mate, that was the worst time in my life. You're asking about demons yeah. from Africa. Like, that was yeah. far, far worse. Okay. And I still, I think I'm still affected by yeah. that by that yeah. feeling um and you know I, I deal in crisis management that's what i do so I, I i dealt with the crisis yeah and was i working at my best no probably yeah no i probably wasn't um and was i good to be around at that time no i wasn't but like i still you know i see headlines in the press at the moment i i, I flinch at them like you know i can feel like yeah. anger inside me yeah. about the way that the way they, they behave and uh and the way I feel incredibly vulnerable now as a as a white man. I, I don't feel that I'm ever going to put myself back in a big public position like okay. that ever again. Just not but, for you, not for your makeup. No. no. And I, I think it's it's too it's too it's just too much of a minefield now. Mm. And I So that was that was May June 2020. Yeah. We're now come to the end of 21, which is probably sort of 18 months. Mm. Does it still, when you go for a leak at five, six o'clock in the morning, <laughs> is that thing that the first thing comes on your mind? Um, not every day. Not every day. Were well, you talking about the newspapers or yeah. are you talking about the period? Um, it's not, but does it affect my thinking regularly? Yes, yeah, okay. yeah it does. Will it affect every hiring decision, every growth decision I make for my business? Will I ever want my business to be massive? I, you know, yeah. These are all wrapped yeah. up in like how exposed I felt then yeah. and how, um, yeah. Well, it seems to me you were doing good for the cause and all of a sudden you've built up this multi-million pound business and all of a sudden you've been hung up to dry. Yeah, well, because the press loves nothing more than building something up to Absolutely. rip it down, right? Absolutely. Um, but I also knew that. And, I, you know, if you speak to people around me at the time, I was like, I... I really want to stop being the story yeah you know i was the face of react my my story my personality was the brand yeah but i was like i have a past that needs to stay in the past yeah you know i'm aware of it you know i'm yeah. not naive to the fact yeah, yeah, that yeah. my past needs to stay in the past and um but i also had to do what was right for mm. the organization at the time mm. and you did and, and i did but it was fucking uncomfortable man. yeah and i felt really exposed all the time and then it happened and it was always going to happen at some yeah. point something was going to happen yeah and I was gonna, I was gonna feel the wrath of the press. How did it affect your relationships around you? Um, Mrs., friends, family, when all this was going on? 
Mrs. was amazing. Yeah. Like she didn't even skip a beat. Um, yeah, she big was Big up amazing. to Krista, by yeah, the way. Big up to Krista. Yeah. Good old love for a girl. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She didn't miss a step and she never has done. She's yeah. been amazing. Um, and you always find out who your good mates are yeah. and who your bad mates are. Yeah. Or who, are, who aren't real who mates. Aren't, yeah. And um, there was a couple of, there was a couple of volunteers that were all over me. Best mates. And then they saw an opportunity yeah. to try and leave me out and have a go, yeah. and they took it. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you you see who your mates are when mm. when you're in the shit because mm. you can also you feel really lonely, yeah. really really lonely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And moving forward, what's on the what's on the agenda now? Moving forward, or are you just enjoying life down here in beautiful Bournemouth? Yeah, Bournemouth. Beautiful Bournemouth. I do love life down here. Same. Man. I'll never leave. Same. I'll never leave. I'm the same, mate. Um, I I started a company called Challenger. Uh, in May with a mate of mine from Marines. Um, What's his name? He's Robert McPherson. Mm. Uh, good guy, Zimbabwean guy. Bringing together our collective experiences, doing rapid response, crisis, delivering complex projects in hard to reach places. Um, and, uh, and that's basically what we're doing. Yeah. You know, so uh, we're doing a lot of stuff at the moment, scoping out and uh, protecting commodities trades in mm. South Africa. Be out in the Middle East working on the Dubai Expo. Really? Yeah. Um, he's doing a tech transformation for an intelligence company in London. It's, it's commercializing the military yeah, approach okay. to planning and executing. Okay. Yeah. So it's just the two of us at the moment. Amazing, mate. Sharp it. I've mm. really enjoyed this conversation, Thanks mate. Thanks for having me on, mate. Thank you for your honesty. Been a, yeah, you've lived an eventful life, and I'm sure there's lots of stories. In fact, I know there's lots of stories we haven't spoken about. I've <laughs> been <laughs> another newspaper. There'll be story. another one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> mate, you've been a star, mate. Thoroughly enjoyed that. Thanks for coming on. Good man. Yeah.